Good afternoon. Are you all fed up? Now, I'd like to hear it for this church. This is the friendliest, most hospitable, gracious church I've been in in years. Ordinarily, I'd say it starts from the pastor on down, but I think it starts from the pastor's wife on up and then down. Well, we went to dinner with them last night, <clears throat> and there was more food on the table than I could. I mean, he'll be eating leftovers for two weeks. But uh, it's been great to be here. Your infectious spirit has been inspiring. And I just want to thank Pastor Steve for inviting us here. I know you invited Pastor Dave first, and uh, then he kind of slid me in the door, but it's okay. Uh, but I'd like to say that I'm honored to be a partner with Pastor Dave Hawking. I've watched his ministry for many years. He's been a faithful servant of the Lord. And through radio and television and any means of communication and through the printed page, he can always be trusted to give the full word of God. And I just wish he'd have enough courage to say what he really thinks. <laughs> but it's, it's just a thrill to be with you talking about the second coming and anticipating the Lord's return. And uh, I'd like to make an announcement I forgot to mention to you. In 1965, now I know that's before some of you were born, but pastoring in San Diego, I saw my two children were in junior high school, and they were coming home, and they were bringing these screwball, socialistic, liberal ideas from the California school system. And I began to recognize they were being taught secularism. And then I began to do some study in it and recognize it was secular humanism. And it starts with atheism, evolution, man's self-determination, autonomous, self-centered man. It starts with man. That's the Greek Pythagoras came up with that idea. And then it, it has no standard. Everything's relative. And then, of course, socialism. And now we're seeing it come to fruition. And that's when I started the first Christian college our first Christian high school in San Diego. I realized we were the second largest city in the California, that, and we didn't have a Christian high school. And so we started one. We, I checked into it to see what the requirements were back in those days. Do you know what the requirement was academically? Nothing. You had to have a gymnasium. <laughs> and in the providence of God, they had gymnasium already planned before we were called to the church some four or five years before. And so I, I didn't stand in the way, and we built this gymnasium, not realizing that was our entree to what was eventually became the largest Christian school system in America. <clears throat> the church hired me a superintendent of education, so the San Diego Christian School System had a superintendent, and we had over 2,100 students in the process of time in our Christian school. And then I realized that when it comes to college, it gets worse. And I realize, you see, it's wonderful to teach the Bible because every now and then the, the Holy Spirit convicts you of what you're teaching. And I recognize that the wisdom of this world, <clears throat> excuse me, is foolishness with God. Now it's apparent the wisdom of this world is foolishness to anyone who has any brains because you realize that the very things that they're doing in our culture are destructive of our culture. Well, to make a long story sharp, short, I started a Christian college. We call it Christian Heritage College, emphasizing the heritage of our 
culture in 1970. Now they've changed the, the title, which is fine with me, to geographically locate it, San Diego Christian College. But it's the same school. It's 38 years old. And I mention this because we are losing today from the church. I hope your church is an exception, depending largely on what kind of a youth program you may have. But the church is losing 70% of its high school young people to the world before they graduate from high school. And of the 30% that stay in the church, if they go to college, we lose another 60%. And we realize that the attack on the human mind is just incredible. And the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness with God, what is the wisdom of God? It's the gospel of salvation. And wherever the cross is deprecated and man despises the cross, he ends up with foolishness. I think it was J.K. Chesterton. I think I admired Pastor Dave. I think I accuse him of having a, a photographic mind. I have one. I'm, in fact, I have a photographic memory, but I can never find the film. <laughs> he, he can find the film for his. But uh, I'm... I'm convinced that it was, I, I recall reading A.K. Jesterson used to say that he that will not believe in God will believe in anything. And that's what we're seeing in our culture today. And the, the teachers in the public school sector, by the way, are the radicals from the 60s that were rebelling against everything and, and God and, and all authority. And we're stuck with that as education. And may I suggest that we need to be serious about educating our children. All that to lead to the fact that if you want your kids to get a good Christian college education, you might consider Christian Heritage College. I'm not part of it anymore, but they are traditionally faith, growing in the spirit of God in the church. And see, I, I was led of God in 1974 to lead the church to buy a Catholic school of 30 acres and beautiful facilities. I mean, we, we Baptists could never have the landscaping and beauty of it that they had. We had to move a little of the statuary out of the place, but we bought it for 25 cents on the dollar. And it was just a wonderful experience. We moved in and had church there for a long time. And then I, I left the church in 81. <clears throat> but that school is still there. David Jeremiah is the pastor in that church. I had the one of the best things I ever did in the providence of God was recommend David to be the preacher there. And he is having a phenomenal ministry. I can't tell you how thrilling it is to go back to a church where I spent 25 years of my life and see it growing by leaps and bounds and people are just thrilling. And anyway, I mention all this because if you want a school where you can depend on creation taught, they teach evolution. What's wrong with it? And they teach creation by the direct act of God. Most Christian schools, in fact, many of you have sent your, you sacrificed money and sent your children to Christian schools thinking that they were going to get the truth about creation. Let me tell you something about creation. If you don't believe in creation by the direct act of God, you have to tamper with the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that God created man. I don't care what the evolutionists say. They can't prove evolution. Oh, they can prove microevolution, little bits, you know, changes. You look at the do dogs. I mean, we, we have two Labradors at our house. They're just nine months old. They're driving me crazy. But anyway, 
when you breed dogs, you can have different kinds of species of dogs, but they're always dogs. Have you noticed that? Some are big, some are little, and they're dogs. But they're always dogs. Has anyone ever met a dog cat or a dog horse? You see, there's, you can have micro evolution. And the, ev the evolutionists like to say, well, we believe in evolution. Sure, micro, but not macro. Macro is when you add the transmigration of the species. That's never happened in the history of the world. When I was a kid, I took a, a, a biology course. Our, interestingly enough, the only master's degree teacher I had in my ninth grade class was a teacher named Babel. He had gone to the University of Minnesota, or, uh, of Michigan, and he got his master's degree in science. And he proceeded to tell us about evolution, and he was teaching macroevolution. And he showed us four missing links. In my science textbook, I saw pictures. Oh, you know, being an impressionable kid, I went home and I'm kind of shaken with that. And uh, then I realized later, when we started the Institute for Creation Research with Dr. Henry Morris, the great creation scientist, they were frauds. And uh, they were just plaster of Paris. In fact, the only bones in them were animal bones. And so that fraud didn't work. But they were assuring us 60 years ago, oh, they're, someday they're going to find the missing link. They're waiting for, they, they we're on the verge of this. They're still on the verge 60 years later, and they still haven't found it. Bigfoot and all these hairy animals. I could never understand why they would have us believe that we came from the hairiest of all animals. Do you ever look at a gorilla? And then in one jump, you're going to come into a man stark naked? I just can't follow that. <laughs> But the subtlety of it, folks, is it invades every discipline in the academic world today. And the tragedy is you can't have both. Many schools, in fact, I read an article in USA Today and I wrote an answer back to it and I hope they'd publish it. In fact, I think they did, a little letter. But these two Christian science professors from Christian schools one of them in San Diego, I won't mention the name of the school, but beautiful campus and wonderful people, but they believe that you can be an evolutionist and a Christian. Well, that's true, but you can't teach evolution as the same as creation. They call it theistic evolution, that God came along and he guided the Big Bang or he guided the evolution. That's nonsense. May I suggest to you we have to get back to the Genesis story, what God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you'll find that once you start tampering with Genesis, then what about John 3? Jesus said, you must be born again. And so if you slight the word in one place, you can slight it anywhere else. That's why I believe that when the Bible says, the Lord declared to man, I am the Lord declaring the end, fulfilled prophecy, from the beginning. Now, why didn't he start with the beginning first? Because there were no witnesses. He alone gave us the record. Where do you think that came Moses didn't come up with that. He had some kind of written documents that only God could have delivered personally. And then he gave it in the Bible. So you have to decide, are you going to believe man or Sigmund Freud or uh, whoever else, Karl Marx or all the rest of them? I say all of that to say, 
If you'd like to sign up for a brochure about Christian Heritage College for your young people or young people you'd like to see preserved from heresy, consider Christian Heritage College. Okay, now let's get to work. I was assigned the subject of speaking on don't be left behind. And you know, I'll tell you the truth. That's my passion. 25 years ago, God put in my heart the message of don't be left behind. I was on an airplane, and I'm sitting there. They had upgraded me, so I'm sitting in first class and praying the Lord would forgive me for that luxury. And uh, all of a sudden, the captain came out of this big plane cabin, and uh, he was flirting with the flight attendant, cute little gal. And I looked down, and I noticed that he had a wedding ring on. And I looked over at her, and she didn't. And I could see the sparks flying between the two. And, you know, you'd have to be a blind man not to figure out that something's going on. And then he walks back in the cabin. I'm on my way to preach at a conference like this on the second coming of Jesus. And so I'm thinking about my message, and I'm thinking, well, just what I've had. And all of a sudden, the thought came to me, wouldn't it be incredible if the rapture occurred on an airplane like this? And with 40,000 takeoffs and landings every day, when the rapture occurs, there are going to be a lot of planes without pilots. That's why in, in Alaska, the Alaskan Airlines, they always require one Christian and a non-Christian to fly together. <laughs> the others are stuck with an automatic uh, pilot. Well, anyway, <laughs> anyway, I got to thinking about if the rapture took place, pandemonium would occur. You know, just, just a... Gallup had just mentioned that at least a third of the American people were born again. Well, then all the born agains are out of here. And their clothes are going to be left behind. Their false teeth are going to be left behind. Any artificial limbs they have, I'd leave a pacemaker behind and a few other parts that I won't mention. And uh, hearing aids and, you know, the whole work. And all of a sudden, the stewardess is pounding on the door saying, Captain! There are a hundred people missing from our aircraft. Well, his first thought is, oh, they're hiding in the labs. A hundred people in the laboratories? I mean, <laughs> you see the lines in the planes. Uh, and so he calls the control. He comes back and checks and finds out that's true. So he calls the, the central uh, command center on the way, and he says, you won't believe this, but a hundred people are missing from my aircraft. And the control center, long pause. Then he says, uh, <clears throat> Captain, we will believe this. You're the 25th pilot that's called in the same message. And he turns to his co-pilot and he says, Hey, you don't suppose this is that rapture that my wife's been talking about? Oh, my God, if it is. When I get home, my wife and my son will be gone. And I've been left behind. And that's where the title for the whole series came. And I started to write a fiction story. I I was a successful writer at the time of nonfiction. Nonfiction writing does not qualify you to be a fiction writer. I learned that quickly. In fact, my my fiction was so bad, even I didn't like it. But I was cheered by the fact that three of my nonfiction writer friends began to write fiction, and I bought their books, and I read it, and I realized they were not fiction writers either. <clears throat> so I began praying that the Lord would guide me to a fiction writer. 
And in the providence of God, he introduced me to Jerry Jenkins, who had written 125 fiction books, and I think he'd used up all of his ideas. He said, hey, you know, the worst thing that you can do as a fiction writer is to sign a contract, take the advance, and your wife's already spent it, and now you're sitting in front of this blank wall, and you don't have an idea what you're going to write about. He said, what you do is you come along with all these Bible charts and diagrams and commentaries and ideas and so on, because I plan out the story based on my understanding of prophecy. He said, you fill my wall with all these ideas, and then I just can't wait to... And he says, I have the fun of writing the fiction from the outlines that I give him. And that's how we've been, been partners for all these years. I say all of that to say that... My passion in all of these, and I had to convince Jerry, he and I have agreed because he's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and I was went one semester at Moody because I graduated from high school early when I was 17 and went there for one semester and then went in the Air Force. But uh, Jerry was on the board of trustees there. He graduated from there. He recently was the president of the, the chairman of the board, and when they called a new president... And uh, so he's very, and we have the same basic eschatological position. And uh, so we, you know, the Bible says two can't walk together unless they be agreed. And you have to agree on the basics. And that the second coming is the basic. I'll make a long story short. We had one goal, and I convinced Jerry of this. I want to have a believable conversion. I don't want to have some evangelist on TV preaching to people. What I want to do is have a genuine personal experience of a person receiving Jesus and then trust the Holy Spirit to use that message when people get alone and they get to thinking about that book they've read and this airline pilot or this police officer or the the housewife or whoever it happens to be has accepted Jesus, a believable conversion that's reproducible in the heart of the believer. And I have great confidence in the Holy Spirit. And it's worked. In every one of our books, many of you have seen them, we've had that. And consequently, we've had more people come to Jesus than anything we have ever done. I had no idea that the Lord was going to take that series. And with the word of mouth commitment of people like yourselves that get excited about the books and the story because they're so faithfully following the prophecies that you recommend it to your friends. And we have had over, well, we quit counting after over 3,000 people had contacted us and sold us. And since then, many people still come up to us and they say, oh, I've got to tell you this story. I've had several people here tell me the same thing. And it's thrilling to hear the stories of how the Holy Spirit takes that fiction story based on prophecy and leads people to Christ. And it has become, and I say this humbly, in the providence of God. Jerry's a great fiction writer, as you know. But that is the best-selling adult fiction in the history of the world. We have 16 books in, in print on it, and I don't know, I've, I've lost count, 70 or 80,000, you hear different reports. I'd take 60, 60 not 1,000, million, at least 60 million books, and then 13 million of the, Christ, the children's books, because we're fishing for the next generation, you can see. Well, now I'm starting a new series like that because it's a great tool to get people to hear the gospel that wouldn't hear it any other time. And you might pray for me. I'm trying to get some real movies made 
that uh, Jerry and I can, and the Christian community can be proud of. Uh, I, I'm my dream, and I've dedicated this to God, I want to see one million people, at least, in this country, come to faith in Christ through a quality movie production. And I'm right now in the throes of seeing it almost financed. And uh, so I won't take an offer here today. But, <laughs> but when, you, when you need $60 million, you have to wait on the Lord. I've been waiting for years, but it's coming. I say all of this to say God can use this message. Why? Because we don't want anybody to be left behind. I remember standing, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been to Francis Schaeffer's place in Switzerland. When you come back from Israel, you like to stop in Switzerland. It's so beautiful. And we were in a place, I'd been to his Labrie conference area. And we went down and, and a missionary couple and I, my wife and I were together. And we had lunch in the picnic basket that they brought. And I have a picture in my office of this. It's very moving to me uh, because the uh, Schaefer's, which is only four miles from their headquarters, and he was a great hiker, and they probably had, and we were sitting there, and I saw the picnic tables, and we had it all to ourselves. And I said, I'll bet Francis Schaefer and his wife have had many a picnic gathering here. And you look out over that vast valley, and I'd been jogging that morning along a canal in somewhere in, in Switzerland, and I saw something that I didn't realize, that these kiosks, they just kind of write names of movies on them, and then the languages they were in. They were all American movies that I happened to recognize the titles, and they were in German, and French, and Italian, and English. And all of a sudden I realized that if a movie does well in America, then they take it to Europe. And the Europeans are used to soundtracks that are different than the you know we like like the words to match what we hear, but in Europe they they take different languages for the same acting. I'll make a long story short. That's what I'm I'm after, and I began praying that the Lord would lead us to a million Europeans to Jesus through those movies. And then I said, you know, the Lord's given me a verse of scripture. <clears throat> See my three, my wife and the two friends. And that is, in the last days, Joel chapter 2. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all, all flesh. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams before the notable day of the Lord come. And I said, I'm trusting that verse as a means of seeing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a, at least a million souls come to faith in Christ. And the missionary that was with, he's now in heaven, he had a great sense of humor. He said, well, hey, you qualify for that. I say, how do you mean? He says, old men will dream dreams. <laughs> and I guess that's right. <laughs> old men can dream dreams of people coming to Jesus using technology. We don't change the message. We change the vehicle that we want to use to communicate that message. And consequently, we have had more people come to faith in Christ than anything I've ever been engaged in. And that's been the passion of my whole life. Uh, let me just tell you a couple of cute stories. I had a man come up to me at a book signing, and he said, uh, Pastor LaHaye, uh, I want you to pray for an atheist friend of mine. And I said, okay, 
what's his name? And he gave me his first name. And he, I said, uh, why do you want me to pray for him especially? And he said, well, he's an atheist. And he said, in fact, I used to be an atheist. And we both love fiction. And he got a hold of a book that you wrote, Left Behind. And he read it. And he said, he gave it to me and he said, this is a Christian book. Uh, I, I don't read Christian books. But he said, it's a good read. And so go ahead and read it. He said, I've read it and I got saved. Now, this, this former atheist wants me to pray for his atheist friend so that he gets saved. And if you think that's something, this is even better. In Houston, Texas, a lady came up to me and she said, um, would you sign my book? And she handed me this dilapidated book. The cover almost fell off. And so I signed it. And uh, I said, this must have a story to it. And she said, yes, it does. She said, uh, I was in my mid-30s. And my atheist father bought this at a garage sale for 25 cents. And he found out it was a Christian book. And he said, oh, I'm not going to read that. So he gave it to me. And she said, I, I read it. And I got saved. So I gave it to my twin brother. And he read it. And he got saved. And he's more outgoing than I am. So he gave it to our other four siblings, all in their 20s or 30s. And they all got saved. She had, so that's six of them. And he, they were so transformed by the power of Christ that the atheist father came to her one day and he said, do you still have that book that I gave you a long time ago? He read it, and believe it or not, he got saved. <laughs> so I wrote to the publishers and said, just think, we've had seven atheists come to faith in Christ for only 25 cents. <laughs> they, they were not impressed. I say all of that to only point out to you that <clears throat> my passion is that you will not be left behind and your loved ones will not be left behind. And that's what this message is really all about. We're living in a world, as I shared with you last night, of 2012 mania. Always some mania about the future. And I explained to you last night that that's man, the satanic influence of all these different religions and cults and isms and spasms, they have the same idea that something is going to happen. Well, I want to tell you, something is going to happen. As a matter of fact, atheistic scientists will admit they see no future for this world beyond 25 years. I've had one of the longest one is 50 years. At the rate the world's going, for the first time, and I'm not trying to scare anybody, I just want to tell you that it's true. For the first time in human history, man has the capability of destroying himself off the face of the earth. I saw some replica of a, a world map or out in the universe, and that if, if an atomic uh, neutron bomb was set off in eight different areas of the world all at the same time, it would dis destroy the entire earth. I don't know. I'm not enough scientist to know if that's possible. But the fact that they're thinking of that, they're saying, we've got to do something. That's what's driving many of the people into socialism. If we could just get the whole world together, we could have world peace. In the name of peace, they're willing to entrust themselves into a world dictatorship and their man's fear of fear itself. And, of course, many people are not only fearful about self-destruction, but fearful of the future. There is a fear of death. I don't know anybody that wants to run up to death and jump off and say, well, I'm, I'm already, I'm, I'm going. Uh, we're 
afraid of what's to come because it's so different than anything we've known. Even those of us who, are, who have peace with God, we're not afraid to die and we're ready. And if you notice, I, as a pastor, I'm sure you pastors have met, had the same experience. We have the privilege of attending certain people in the hour of death. And you know, the, the closer a person is in their relationship to God, the less they fear death. As a matter of fact, we think of it as a promotion. We're absent from the body and present with the Lord. What could be better than that? When you're mourning, don't mourn for the person that's gone on before. If they're a Christian, we promoted them to a better way of life. Mourn for the people that are left behind. Even the loved ones said they're ready to go, but now they have to face life all by themselves. And you'll find that uh, that can be a pretty traumatic experience. But now, what are they left behind of? Well, if you've seen our charts, you know that pretty much God has a wonderful plan for our future. And based on my second coming chart, you'll see that here we are. Where are we right now in this picture? We're right there at the end of the yellow zone, just before the rapture comes. And then after that, the tribulation period, when God is going to reach get this, the seventh chapter of Revelation. He's going to seal 144,000 Apostle Paul types. Can you imagine the evangelism in this world when 144,000 Jews like the Apostle Paul get saved and go out communicating his message? No wonder in the next verses 9 through 15, he talks about these that are saved out of great tribulation, a multitude which no man can number. Now, there is a number in the scriptures, 200 million, that's mentioned demons coming out of the pit. So that's a number. So it'll be more than 200 million. It's so enormous. During that time, there will be millions of people. They'll still have to, and don't be like somebody came up to me and said, well, I'm going to wait until the tribulation and I can be an evangelist. Well, may I suggest you have no idea the chaos, the suffering during that tribulation. The purpose of that is to cause people that won't accept Christ now to turn to him in desperation before it's too late. And I'd like to call your attention to a verse of scripture that I'd like to read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that I'd never get to the real text. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, and the gathering together unto him, what is he talking He's talking about the second coming, the coming of our Lord Jesus, and even our gathering together unto him. That's the rapture. Not to be soon shaken in, or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ is when Christ is going to come to the earth. And he's saying, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Let me caution you, there are many preachers that use this as an evangelistic tool, but may I suggest, that's, in my opinion, it's not a legitimate tomb because, tool, there are seven of the earliest translations of the Greek into English and they all use that falling away as departing, 
What does that suggest to you? Let's go back and read it with the word departing in it. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the departing or the rapture will not come unless the falling away comes first. The day of Christ will not come until the departing takes place. And after that, the man of sin is revealed. Now we know that's the sequence from other passages in the Bible. Later on, when they translated the King James Version, they changed that to falling away because there are other prophecies, particularly in First and Second Timothy, that talk about the falling away. There will be a falling away. There will be an apostasia. But may I suggest that that's not the best use of the word here. And then he describes this man of sin who's going to come. And here's what he does. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself as he is God. He, is pre- he has an image made in the temple that has, requires that people bow down and worship him. And if they don't do that, they offer their head. In the book of Revelation, it describes that. Do you not remember that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that it may be revealed in their own time or his own time. I wish we had time to go into the detail, but what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. For example, when the Holy Spirit is in how many millions of us, there may be a third of the population, that's a restraining influence. It's taken a long time for the the communists and the socialists and the, the evolutionists and all the secular humanists to get our country ready to accept any kind of philosophy that will bring in peace. But uh, we have restrained them. But with the advance of technology and pornography and all, you know, all of them. Read Dave's book on the morality, the death of morality. It's, we're restraining it. But when we're taken out of the world, the world will go morally uh, down the sewer. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who restrains the world from licentious sin? The Holy Spirit in the life of believers. And when we're taken out, Now, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit won't convict people like he did in the Old Testament and see them saved. We saw that in Revelation 7. All of this to point out that we're living in a time when the world is getting ready for that master deceiver that uh, Pastor Dave is going to talk to you about in the next session. And you need to pay very close attention to what he's going to say. And what do we learn from this? We learn that... The Bible says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He's coming, and we are saved from the wrath to come. That's a promise of Jesus. It's a promise of the Word of God. And I'd like to call your attention again to that John 14, verse 3, because what I want you to really see is why God's wonderful plan Why miss God's wonderful plan for your future? Not a person here needs to, and I hope all of you have received Jesus. And I'm preaching to the choir. You look like a choir. You're a little tired and sleepy after a good lunch. But the truth is, you don't have to miss God's wonderful plan for the future. 
What do we have? After the tribulation, just seven short years. And then you have a thousand years of millennial kingdom. Pastor Dave, we haven't even talked about the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is going to be fantastical. In fact, the best word I can think of to describe the millennium is utopia. Wouldn't you love it? And we're going to be there with our new bodies, with Christ. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. All these are promises of God. I hope that promise includes you. And it has, if you've received Jesus. Oh, and by the way, after the thousand years when there's no war, there's no suffering, there's no homeless people, there are no poverty-stricken people, everyone will have enough because King Jesus will be in charge of the economy, the government, and everything. He'll even be in, if they have anything like TV, he'll be in charge of the FCC or whatever they have. Make sure it's really done right. And it will be a kingdom of righteousness. And then, folks, it gets better. It's called heaven. I can't think of a better word to describe heaven. And that's forever and ever and ever and ever. Do you know, if, if I were not a Christian and I saw the wonderful plan God has for mankind, I'd become a Christian just to be able to enjoy it. And it's such an appealing thing. You ask yourself, why in the world doesn't everyone accept that plan? I'm going to show you in just a moment. Turn with me in your Bible quickly to John 5. <clears throat> Fortunately, we've got plenty of time. Um, in John chapter 5, Jesus was telling his disciples who he was. He revealed to them, to them that he was God, that he had supernatural power. There are six things that Jesus mentioned. And then in verse 31, he said that he would be the, in verse 22, he'd be the judge. When, if you're not saved, may I suggest, when you get out yonder in eternity and stand at the great white throne judgment, you'll be faced with Jesus. Because all judgment is committed down to him. And so the one you reject will be the one who's on the throne. But having all, all that in the six evidences, he makes a strange statement in verse 31 of John chapter 5. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, usually when you think of the word true, you think of accurate. Actually, you ought to write this in the flyleaf of your Bible. The Greek word literally means valid in the context. He's saying, if I bear witness of myself, it's not a valid witness. And what he means by that is in the Mosaic law, they were Jews in the Old Testament, living under the Old Testament law at the time. It was required for a, a person to become a Jew. For example, if you killed somebody and you had one witness, though it was a true witness, it was an accurate witness, if it was only one, it was not valid. You had to have two witnesses. It was before two witnesses. And so Jesus is saying, my witness alone as the Son of God, that I am the Son of God, is not valid. It is not accurate because it can't be accepted in a court of law. But in addition to that, I have other witness. There's another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is valid. So then he starts in, who is that witness? The greatest man that ever was born of woman, according to Jesus. 
He said, yes, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. So the purpose of this message from Jesus is that we might be saved for he was, you do not receive testimony of man, but you went to John, verse 33. You have sent to John and he bears witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to notice his light. A phenomenon took place in Israel. John, the first, first prophet in 400 years, they had 400 years of silence where they got no message from God. Now suddenly John the Baptist comes along and he's preaching to the people, repent. And people flocked down, they had a moving of the Spirit of God in an incredible way. And they went down to the Jordan River and he's baptizing everyone. And a strange thing happened. All of a sudden, John's baptizing priests who were repenting, baptizing prostitutes, thugs, anyone who repented, ordinary people that repented in the, and he baptized everybody. And all of a sudden he stopped and an amazing thing happened. He looked up from the water and he's looking at this person on the shore and he said, oh no, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And who was that? His cousin, Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Do cousins know cousins? They were only six months apart. And John the Baptist was involuntarily confessing that this man was a category unto himself. He was a holy man. He's 30 years old. John was 30 and something. And he's saying... This man is a perfect lamb of God because that's what he did. After the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Lord had revealed to John that when you see the, a spirit like a dove come and rest on him, you know that is the Messiah. And that actually happened when he came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit came and rested on Jesus. And John said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Beautiful picture where John involuntarily is acknowledging that Jesus is in a category by himself. And let me tell you, he was a Jew. John the Baptist knew the way the Jewish believed. And they knew that the requirement for a sacrifice had to be perfect. He had to be sinless. He had to be without spot or blemish or anything such thing. And so John the Baptist is the second. Now, he could have quit there. He could have said, okay, now I'm, my witness is true and John the Baptist is true. Now he said, yes, I do not receive testimony from man, verse 34, but I say these things that you might be saved. So this is the heart and core of the gospel message. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works that I do bear witness of me. What are the works that Jesus did? Well, the miracles of Jesus. Someone, I read a book many years ago that really helped me theologically. <clears throat> it was The Supernaturalness of Christ by Wilbur Smith. And in it, he lists, there are five categories of miracles, about 39 miracles in the New Testament, and he did many more than that. 
but he did nature miracles. Remember when he changed water into wine and he controlled the storm and it did there were that category. And then there was the category of, of uh, bodily healing. I always love the stories of Blind Bartimaeus and others who, and I found six references in the book of Isaiah that one of the signs of the Messiah would be he'd, he'd bring sight to blind eyes. He'd restore the blind for sight. And Jesus did that probably many more times because all of miracles that Jesus performed were not listed in the scripture that he did many more. And then in addition to that, Jesus cast out demons. Whenever the demons came to Jesus, what is it that they cried out? Have mercy on me, thou son of David. They understood who he was and they wanted to be, be protected from his supernatural power. And you remember the, the swine situation where he sent them down into the, the uh, lake. And then the multiple miracles. Remember the two times, one time he fed 5,000 men and probably 5,000 women. If you have 5,000 men and women, you probably have 20,000 children and uh, whatever they had. There were, there were probably 10 to 20,000 people that received his blessing on a boy's lunch. I've often wondered about that. Someday I'd like to make a movie about this little boy. Nathan, maybe is his name. Jewish boy. His mother said, oh, you're going to go hear the master today. Well, you better take a lunch. And that little kid, probably about 10, 12 years of age, he loves Jesus, and he's probably sitting in the front row. And when Jesus wants to feed the people, he's not concerned about the people. He wants Jesus to have something to eat, so he gives him his lunch. And whenever you give something to the Lord, he blesses it, and you know that thrilling story. When the disciples gave the, the lunch, it just wouldn't get five loaves and three fishes. Or, it just uh, incredible how that's extended and extended and extended. And when they got through, they had 12 baskets full left over, one for each of the disciples. It's a supernatural miracle of multiplication. That happened twice during the life of Jesus. But the one that's most outstanding <clears throat> is the miracle of resurrection. Jesus had the power to resurrect the dead. Well, three times, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. Oh, how many times in Sunday school and through the years you've teach, you taught the word of God and how thrilled we've been when Jesus stands at this tomb where Lazarus has been dead so long he smelled up the whole neighborhood and he said, roll back the stone. They said, oh, no, he'll smell up the area. And he said, roll it back. And then he called, Lazarus, come forth. Dave, I don't know if Dr. Ironside was still living when you went to school. He was when I, he came as a Bible teacher. I'll never forget this man with <clears throat> the deep, resonant voice, somewhat like yours. <clears throat> and he got to telling about this story one time. And I never forgot it. He said, why did Jesus stand at the tomb and call Lazarus. Why didn't he just say, come forth? Because if he had, the whole cemetery would have emptied. <laughs> and folks, that's the voice that's going to shout from heaven and call all believers up to be with him. I hope you're in that category. So the third witness, Jesus, and you find the, the John the Baptist, and the miracles. But look at the next verse. 
He said, and the Father himself, do not bear witness of the Father has sent me. The Father has given him a witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Uh, May I point out to you that God the Father spoke three times. And essentially he said similar messages each time. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And one is found in the 17th chapter of Matthew. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus was transfigured before the other apostles. That's the only time in the Bible where the divine nature of Jesus shone through his flesh and manifest himself as God in human flesh. And as he did that, he's communicating with Moses and Elijah who had come back from the dead and they were talking to him about his impending sacrifice on the cross. See, that's why Jesus came, so that he could die as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross. And what he's saying is, God the Father has revealed him. But then there's another witness, and I want you to see this one. He says, but you do not have the word abiding in you, not only the Father himself, but the word, because whom you sent, whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Remember how many times the prophets had predicted the Messiah? 109 times. And Jesus fulfilled them all. They, and you'll find many of these referred to by example in the, in the Gospels. But you are not willing to come to me. And so what I want to share with you in closing is that the reason people are going to be left behind is really not ignorance, not even lack of information. One of the things that Jesus said is, if any man wills to do my will, he will know the teachings. And I could tell you story after story of missionaries that have been led through headhunter countries to a primitive tribe at the life and limb risk of themselves. And they get there and they find somebody worshiping like Cornelius, a God. They don't know who to worship, but he's up there somewhere and they're committing themselves to him. And he said, if any man wills to do my will, he will know the teachings. But you, wouldn't, these people were the most educated about the things of God in the world, but they refused because Jesus didn't come according to their belief. You see, they wanted a king, Jesus, to come and separate them from Rome. They weren't interested in someone to separate them from something worse than Rome, and that was their sin. Man has to understand that our sins needed to be forgiven, and Jesus was the only one in all the universe that could forgive sin, because he's the only one who was God in human flesh. And so I'd like to ask you a question. Have you really received Jesus? Don't look for another way. When I was on the Marley Safer show, we interviewed him, for he interviewed us, and I'm praying, Lord, this is going out to millions of people and they pay for it, and I want to get the gospel. So I prayed earnestly and I had my friends pray that we'd be able to get the gospel clear. And this incredible thing happened. 
Morley Safer looked at me and he said, now you mean to say, he, he first started asking, asked the question, uh, why do you insist that Jesus is the only way? Well, I, you know, when I started with this business, I, I could just give the quick answer, well, because Jesus is the only way. And that's a quick answer, but there's a better answer. Because of who he is. How could one man's blood atone for the sins of the whole world? Because that was not a man's blood. That was the blood of God. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. What was in that cup? It was not the ignominious suffering that he was going to experience on the cross. He said, for this cause came I into the world. But the thing he didn't want to partake of was our sin. You see, he had to be made sin for us so that he could taste death for every man. And when in that moment he said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Thank God he added that. Because there was no other way. The only way for sin to be forgiven for 13 billion people is if God died for the sins of mankind, which Jesus did. So I'm praying that the Lord would let me get that clear. And Morley Safer said, uh, now, you mean you insist on giving the gospel in all these meetings you have? said, now, what is the gospel? I said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And then he turned to me and he said, now let me get this straight. Are you saying that I'm not a believer, but if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, I could become a Christian? And I said, yes. So glad he noticed. I don't know if he ever did or not. I couldn't give an invitation on TV but I sure was tempted to. The important thing is, we got it in twice. I was just asking for once. Amazing how the Lord does exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But the important thing today is, have you called on him? Have you said, yes, Lord Jesus? Well, in closing, I'm really gonna close with this. Turn with me to Romans. I found something recently that just warmed the heckles of my heart. Paul. In Romans 1, says, a bondservant, referring to himself, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul was very conscious that he was separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we've already mentioned that. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So there's no question of who he's referring to, but here it is in verse four. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection declares that Jesus was an adequate sacrifice for our sin. When you realize Jesus came down, he made himself lower than the angels so that he could taste death for every man. And there he is in that helpless condition of death in the tomb. And he's totally subjected to God. 
And so here we have a righteous God declaring the gospel, and it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's like God himself stamping his approval on the sacrifice for sin. Remember, the requirement for a sacrifice is perfection. And how do we know Jesus was really perfect? The resurrection. And how do we know that resurrection really happened? Well, Tom Brokaw, I don't usually quote him in a message, but it fits in this situation. He, he did a two-hour uh, documentary on Christianity. And I was intrigued to notice at the end, wasn't really very good, he had a lot of liberals quoted. But at the end, Peter Jennings said, looked into the camera and he said, uh, Christianity is the only religion based on resurrection. And how do we know that resurrection really happened? He said, the best evidence for the resurrection is the existence of Christianity itself. Put that into perspective. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, would we be here? Would this be the largest religion in the history of the world? Two billion people who make some kind of a nominal belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have the whole message given to us. Jesus said it. The miracles prove it. John the Baptist, the scriptures, and the voice of God the Father. But in verse 40, tragic verse, he said, But you willed not to come unto me. Why is it that people do not come to Jesus? Because of ignorance? No. Because there isn't evidence? No. Because God has not approved it? No. Because they will not. One of the saddest experiences along this line was an engineer we had in our church. In fact, he married a a girl from Bob Jones. And they had a lovely daughter, redheaded kid, very gracious, outgoing, sanguine gal. Her dad loved her. And one day I noticed John sitting up in the balcony of our church And I was really praying that God would speak to his heart. And he did. And that morning, as he walked out the door of the church, he said, "Uh, Tim, would you come by and and see me? I'm on vacation next week for an engineer at Convair. And uh, I said, sure. What time? One o'clock, I'll be there. So at one o'clock, I rolled into his driveway. And he said he he wanted to talk to me about a question. He said, I have two questions I want to ask answered. If you answer those questions, I'll accept Christ. Well, that was too big an offer to skip, so I'm there at one o'clock. And we sit down, and I said, what are your questions, Don? And I've forgotten now what they are, but I'll tell you what. Believe it or not, I had studied the answer to those questions within 10 days. And even my memory's not short enough to forget it in that time. And so I gave him all the answers that I had. And when I got all through, I said, now, Don, are you willing to accept Jesus? And he said, oh, no, 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 let's not get in too big a hurry here. And he didn't accept Jesus that day. Ten years later, he moved up here somewhere in Northern California. I heard that his daughter led him to Jesus. And he accepted Jesus as his Lord. Ten years later. But by that time, his beloved wife had died. Oh, they'll be together for heaven. And he really accepted Jesus. I thought... What a sad 
way to live just because I will not. And you see, that's the problem that all mankind has. Why did you not come to me, Jesus said? You are not willing to come. Many people in that day were willing, and they became Christians. Over 500 saw Jesus after the resurrection. So we know many people accepted him. And the work of the Holy Spirit was phenomenal after that because they were willing. My question to you as an individual is, are you willing? I know most of you are, or you have been. But if you have never received Jesus, let's erase that doubt today, shall we? Let's bow together for prayer. In a moment of silent prayer, look into your heart and ask yourself, have I really called on the name of the Lord? Just last night, a lady told me how she had called on the name of the Lord by calling her two daughters and saying, I'm not sure I have ever accepted Jesus. And so the two daughters that had been praying for her came and they got on the phone, I guess, and chatted with her and and she prayed to receive Jesus. And suddenly the peace of God flooded her heart. You can have the same experience, but you have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's his requirement. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Are you willing? Pray this prayer in your heart. Oh God, I am willing. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. I believe you died for me and for my sin and rose again the third day. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, may your Holy Spirit do the work that only he can do in each heart. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.